0: Imagine it's the year 2005. You are a 17-year-old young woman living in a small timber mining town in the Pacific Northwest. You're a fish out of water. You're a transplant from Phoenix, Arizona. But you settle in easily uh, with a new group of friends, and you find comfort in your new environment. You even have a number of young suitors, jocks, and cool kids vying for your attention, perhaps, even for your heart. But a different young man already has your attention. He's a sullen young guy with pale skin, and he sits next to you in biology. Uh, But unlike the other boys, he seems repulsed by you. After disappearing for a few days, he reemerges much friendlier. Your conversations are easy, they're funny. Maybe they're flirty? It's too soon to say. Later, you're walking out of the high school and through the parking lot when an errant van skids towards you. You're one moment from being struck when the pale young man covers a distance of over 30 feet in an instant and stops the van with just his hand, saving your life. You start to express your gratitude when his mood shifts again and he warns you not to befriend him and he disappears into the timbers. A creeping suspicion comes over you. Could this young man, this boy with paper-white skin, be a blood-sucking, immortal vampire of legend? He has superhuman strength. He has an aversion to direct sunlight. But no, it couldn't be. And yet, it is so. He confirms it to you, in fact. And as quickly as he saved your life in that parking lot... A courtship begins. He's nice to you. He swears he won't suck your blood. And he invites you home to meet his family. You arrive at an amazing, modern-looking home buried deep in the woods of the Olympic Peninsula. You meet his family. He leads you down the hall and into his bedroom. Only there's no bed. I don't sleep, he says to you with a smile. You see rare books and vinyl records and CDs filling the shelves and strewn about the floor. And you wonder, what sort of music does an ageless vampire listen to for pleasure? So you press play on the modern sound system and you hear the opening notes of a familiar piece of music. you see he says his eyes are glued to yours and yours to his you bite your lip and you smile claire de lune is is great you say and you are in love Your love will bring you inches from death at the hands of other, more evil vampires. It will be tested when you meet a hot werewolf. And it will reign victorious when you finally decide to join that soft, sweet lover of French impressionistic music in immortality, becoming a vampire yourself. Now, you can imagine all that. Or... You could just listen to Claire de you yourself, and be transported to a mind palace as romantic as the one we just visited together. Because this is no mere classical tune. This is an ode to mystery, passion, and longing. This is the story of a song. This is Ear Buddies. buddy's army tim here uh as you can hear uh from well everything you've heard up to this point my pal matt is not with me our our schedules just couldn't align this week and so uh you're stuck with little old tim on the mic you know you've had a lot of solo eps matt has uh, has covered for me uh several times recently uh, and he's due for a break so here's tim here's timmy on the mic And I'm doing what my pal Matt has done very well in the past, which is uh, the story of a song. Uh, You've heard him do it with Bittersweet Symphony, uh, and he also did it uh, with In the Jungle uh, in season one of Ear Buddies. So I thought I'd take a crack at it myself and put on my real musician hat and tell you a little bit about Claire DeLune. A beautiful piece of music by Claude Debussy, which uh, Edward explains to Bella in Twilight. Uh, you know, we opened with a, a vision of Twilight. Uh, lovely film. And, you know, Edward could have been listening to anything, right? He that guy had all sorts of records, all sorts of tapes and CDs in his room. So why Claire DeLune? Well, uh, that's kind of what I want to get into today. I would argue it's the perfect song that Edward could have been listening to. Uh, it's it's exactly what he should have had queued up on his uh, on his CD player as he's trying to get a girl to fall in love with him. More on that soon. First, let me just say that uh, this is a piece of music that you probably know, uh, you out there in the army. Even if you're not a big classical music head, it's one of those that I think permeates the culture uh, in part because it shows up in movies like Twilight. It's also been in, uh, uh, let's see, a Godzilla movie. It was in Atonement. It was almost in Fantasia. I'm, I'm reading from a list online. Westworld had it on, The Purge. It was in The Purge, apparently. So it's everywhere, right? Uh, it's it's like a go-to, wistful, uh, well, romantic piece of uh, classical piano music. I first heard it myself when I was an eighth grader watching Ocean's Eleven. And it's used to great effect. It's actually, instead of being a piano piece as it was composed... Uh, it has been turned into a symphonic piece for a, for a whole symphony orchestra to play. And it, it, you, you watch uh, all of Ocean's Eleven uh, leave the heist that they pulled off in, in Las Vegas, and they're, they're watching the, uh, the fountains at the Bellagio as the song plays, and they all one by one leave and, and go their separate ways. It's great. And I went back and listened to it a lot, I put it on my iPod Mini and listened to it on repeat because I found it just beautiful. I, you know, I'm a little eighth grade uh, dummy. I know nothing about music, but I know. That I love this piece of music. And I think a lot of people have a similar relationship to this piece. And we'll get into why in a moment. First, I I do think uh, I should do my due diligence, since this is the story of a song. And get into the context a bit of of how it was written and where it existed in the culture uh, back in the day. So, uh, first, let's start with Claude Debussy, a French composer who lived from 1862 until 1918. And he was part of what's uh, what's called the Impressionist Movement. And if that sounds familiar, it, it might be because you're aware of Impressionism in art. Uh, the Impressionist Movement actually started as something that a bunch of painters were doing and it was also a French thing uh, and it was happening at the same time that Debussy was writing his music and they are both basically working with the same central ideas. So in art, uh, impressionism is all about these little brush strokes, uh, that you can see that aren't hidden in any way. It's less about nailing every detail and rather getting, uh, an impression, of whatever it is the painter is depicting and uh, light and color are used to great effect free brushing it's called you know so so it's a bit like unfocusing your eyes if you look up some paintings by monet or renoir you'll get it Um, i'm sure you've seen these before it's basically the same idea in music it's a focus instead of uh, strictly adhering to like rules, quote unquote, or being in a key or having some rigid form of some sort uh, and structure. Uh, it is much more about color and much more about about vibes. And when you listen to it, and if you you know let your brain kind of drift mindlessly into stereotypes, it feels French, doesn't it? It it feels. It's, it's spare, and it, it, it does sort of exude this mystery and, and romance. You know what I mean? This je ne sais quoi. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying. Anyway, so that's Debussy. So, in 1905, Debussy publishes a four-part piece of piano music, and it's called Sweet Bergamesque. And Claire de Lune is the third of that four-part uh, structure. And actually, it wasn't named Claire de Lune at first. It um, it had a different name because he started writing it 15 years before it actually wound up being published and included in Sweet Bergamesque. And I want to focus on kind of that, that history because that, I think, actually is what gets to the heart of Claire de Lune, so it was originally called Promenade Sentimental, which was a poem, well is a poem, by Paul Verlaine, and I'm going to play a reading of that poem for you now in its entirety, because this dude on YouTube, who I am uh, uh, sharing with you now, really crushes it and has an amazing voice, so here is Promenade Sentimental. Le couchant dardait ses rayons suprêmes,
1: Et le vent berçait les nénuphars blêmes. Les grands nénuphars entre les roseaux Tristement luisaient sur les calmes eaux. Moi, j'errais tout seul, Promenant ma plaie au long de l'étang, Parmi la soleil où la brume vague évoquait un grand fantôme laiteux, Se désespérant, et pleurant avec la voix des sarcelles, Qui se rappelait en battant des ailes parmi la soleil, Où j'irai tout seul, promenant ma plaie. Et l'épais linceul des ténèbres vint noyer les suprêmes rayons du couchant, Dans
0: I have linked uh, that reading on YouTube in the show notes because it just seems like it's a regular dude reading poems for fun and he deserves credit. Uh, so you can you can check him out and subscribe uh by checking out the show notes so look i'm not, I'm not the poetry guy on the pod, right That's math, but translated to English, here's how the poem starts: The setting sun casts its final rays, and the breeze rocked the pale water lilies and from there it goes on. And on about wandering through this willow grove at sunset while you're feeling sort of sad, vaguely sad, I guess. It's great. It's great. It's good stuff. You know, I mean, it sure sounds nice (laughs) when it's read by a deep-voiced French guy. I love that. So Debussy hears it or he reads it or whatever. And he says, hey, I I could make a tune out of that thing. And he sits down at the piano. He gets to it. And kind of sits on it, uh, doesn't publish it right away. And then uh, 15 years later, he includes it in that suite and he calls it Claire de Lune. So what is it about this piece that actually is like so good? Can we define what makes this song uh, lovely? We can to some extent. In some ways, we can't, but I'll talk about that more later. But let's start with what we can define. To do that, I need to dip my toe, uh, my left big toe. I'm dipping it right now into the murky waters of music theory. And if that sounds boring to you, I get it. You know, I get it. I It's music theory uh seems like a boring thing and maybe even like a needless thing like y- you listen to music you're a you know you're in you're in the army you get it you know what you like you know what you dislike why would you need uh to like read the rules of music uh well i will attempt to uh make it make sense here and and to do so I will say to you that music theory is really not about knowing the rules because there aren't really rules. People just make music like nobody wrote a rule book, you know, 800 years ago or whatever and said, okay, attention all musicians. This is how you write good music. You you follow these steps. People just did what felt right. And, music theory is our way of explaining what they're doing after the fact it is descriptive it's not prescriptive i guess if that makes sense it's so it's finding the words to say oh i loved that turn of of a chord progression or or something like that what exactly happened there and and um that is that's why music theory is great and what the, what the big theory heads out there have concluded after studying all the great music is basically this. That everything we love in music, maybe not everything, but most of what we love in music, is about tension and release. Uh, as Lydia Tarr put it, actually, in last week's episode, um, in the clip we played from that movie, it's about asking a question... And getting an answer.
1: It really is. It's a question. And an answer. Which begs another question.
0: That's basically what all of, like, harmony in music is. Sometimes you hear, uh, you know, real musicians talk about resolving chords. So that's like being on a five chord. And resolving it to one. Uh, that's because our ears have been trained to want a G major chord to turn into a C major chord next. But sometimes instead it will actually go to an A minor chord. It resolves unexpectedly to the, to the sad chord in the key. And that is also very pleasant. That's really, that makes us very happy. It makes our brains feel good. It's still a resolution, but, you know, it's a zig instead of a zag. Um, And that, to me, and uh, I, I believe I am backed up by some degree of scientific research here. That's where the magic is. And there are a gazillion interesting ways that you can resolve a chord, in expected ways or unexpected ways. And then you get all kinds of music that affects us differently. And, uh, that is, that is what I love about music theory is because it, it helps me, um, when I get sort of a, when I'm roused by some, some moment in a piece of music, I can go back and say, what, what did it there? Like, and can I recognize it in other pieces of music? So that's why I use it. This is a roundabout way of of saying what happens in Claire de lune, I think is some of the best deployment of um questions and answers tension and release these these the setting of expectation and either um you know following through with it or subverting it in some way. so with all of that being said, why don't we listen through Claire de Lune a little bit. I'm going to kind of start and stop and pause and go over why I think it makes, uh, makes us all feel so good when we listen to it and why I think it's such a beautiful and romantic piece of music. I'm going to start with the very beginning. Uh, it's soft and it's gentle and it goes from a one chord um, and in this case uh, that would be a D flat chord. D flat major and it goes from one to f- a minor four which which you may recall is the Christmas chord it's that that beautiful half step um, it's yearning it's longing it's it's Christmas <laughs> apparently okay anyway we'll keep going there we're sort of surprised by a sad chord and it leads us back to home it leads us back to the major one here and it's bigger now you know and like so much good music this has a great melody you know you can sing along to it Okay, I'm going to pause there and, and I'm going to play that again because it's just so amazing. It uses, gosh, s- most of the piano there, that huge low note and then a big uh, chord up top at the very tip top of the piano and uh, the low, the held out notes and the the sort of slow, like you don't feel any sort of beat here right for this whole opening section it's it's what is called rubato in classical music terms it's it's free there's no uh no rules here you can kind of take it however you however you want and that is that's so that's impressionism right it's it's free there it's not rigid and and adhering to a bunch of rules sorry let me just back it up let's hear that note again and hear what's happening here this is a big building section that builds to um the b section of the piece which is where it really gets wild Okay, sorry. Let me just say one more thing. It's on a two chord. It's on a big minor two chord, which desperately wants to go to a five chord, which wants to go to a one chord. I'm sorry. Maybe that doesn't make a lot of sense. Two, five, one, though, is like this. It's everywhere in music. Like every jazz piece of music uses that chord progression 75 times. It's so um, basic in a way. But it's used in with so much um, ornamentation, and it's uh, just it's it's complex, but it's just so simple. Anyway, okay, I'm gonna start it over again. I'm sorry. 5 chord like I was saying but instead of 1 it goes up a half step and it goes up some more and it keeps it keeps subverting our expectations and it's growing it's doing everything right Here's a big five chord, and this time it leads to one, but it leads to a totally new feeling. theme is so clear and present through the whole thing. The do, 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 is it's all over the place in different ways and it has different feelings and in different chords it it affects you differently. Perfect. And then it goes back to the beginning here. but it's changing things I'm I'm kind of obsessed with that moment in Tar where Lydia's sitting at the piano and she's playing that Bach piece and she's talking about how It's questions and answers like that's so central. If you just know that about music and music theory, you know, like 98% of what any musician out there would ever need to know uh, about what makes music good. And here in this, this section where the chords are... Um, slow again and it's, it's rubato and free once more and it's not this sweeping flowing melody like that, that middle section um, you can almost imagine Lydia sitting at the piano saying uh, it's a question And an answer. Which leads to another question. You know, it's like that's so that's so good. Like I know Lydia's a bad person, but she does understand that. And that's that's great. of like sevenths and ninths and, and like big big stacked chords here that that add to that yearning romantic nature there's here's a two chord which leads to a five. It goes right to a one like you would hope. You know this piece, it lands in so many unexpected places, questions are answered in ways you don't expect so many times, that to finally land on that one chord, um, it's cathartic, it is refreshing, it feels wonderful. it's just perfect. Like it's, I have heard that song probably 700 times in my life. And I have goosebumps right now because I love it so much and I find it to be so affecting and I hope it affects you too in that way. Um, and now I want to share some words, uh, that, that were said by Claude Debussy himself that essentially throw cold water on everything I have said on the pod up to this point. Um, Claude wrote in an essay once, quote, we should constantly be reminding ourselves that the beauty of a work of art is something that will always remain mysterious. That is to say, one can never find out exactly how it is done, quote unquote. At all costs, let us preserve this element of magic peculiar to music by its very nature music is more likely to contain something of the magical than any other art. End quote. He says one can never find out exactly how it is done. That, that is, <clears throat> that is right on the money, you know, and I'm speaking as someone who uh, is an advocate for like learning music theory. I went to school for it. I'm really glad I did. I'm glad I know music theory. Um, But he's he's super right here. And not to speak for my pal Matt, but I do think we both really relate to that sentiment. Actually, Matt alluded to this um, in our uh, thrifting episode. Let me look at the episode numbers. Which one was that? That was episode 62, where we talk about the different elements of music. This was an idea I, I stole from my music theory class in college um helping us kind of get a sense of finding the words for for what we like in music. Anyway, we were talking about melody and Matt w- said that like a good melody is this totally mystical thing that can't be explained, it can't be boiled down to some science or or any like general generalities. It's just good. Like if it's a good melody, it is good and how it's good is hard to Explain or understand—it's maybe impossible. And I love what he said about that. Uh, It—he's super right, as usual. Matt's always correct. Um, but that's that's central to music, it, mystery, and just letting things move you without having to take out a magnifying glass uh, and like CSI the whole the whole situation. I think that's really, that's really good. So to define exactly what makes Claire de Lune this perfectly romantic piece of music, you know, I bet there are nerds out there who have analyzed every single note up and down and they have all these conclusions. Um, but you know what? I think just listening to it, uh, like just sit down and listen to the piece of music and you get it. You just... You understand because of choices the Debussy made, sitting at a piano, uh, letting the music move him. He made decisions that ultimately move us. You know the vast majority of listeners. I say that because this is this is like one of the one of the very top pieces of classical music. Like one of the most recognizable. It's just it's in that. Upper 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 stratosphere of music. So all of this to say, Edward, he knew exactly what he was like if, if he was trying to make Bella fall in love, like he nailed it, you should have you should have Claire de lune prepped and ready to go on your music streaming platform or your record player or your CD player or whatever. Uh, just like Edward did, because it is beautiful. It's stirring. It's romantic. Uh, the chords are the are aching, and the melodies flow like water. It's just, it's just excellent. It's beautiful, and I think the fact that anyone, you know, any uh real musician or uh non musician, any member of the army or someone even just Not interested at all in enlisting. Anybody can recognize the beauty there. You don't have to be trained. You can just be a 17-year-old girl living in Forks, Washington, and falling in love with a hot vampire, and you get it. You get it. Claire DeLune rules. And I will leave it right there. Thank you for listening once again to your buddies. Um, Matt will be back next week the gang's back together and who uh, boy we're getting angry this time uh, next we're talking about um, Morgan Wallen uh, and the state of country music in 2023 uh, so you know brace yourself for that and talk to you later buddies